So far what we have seen is that the fact that Yaakov has fled from Esau's wrath shows us many important principles. And as such, because these events are occurring with the others, then of course they will follow through with the descendants of both Yaakov and Esau, as I had mentioned previously. And so far what we have seen is that on Hogesi Yichud, the backup system that the Rabbani Shalom uses to bring the Klai Yisrael to its ultimate redemption, uses the Rishoim and the Sitra Achor themselves to be the very agent of this messianic process, of this Tikkun of the Bria, and of course of the ultimate Geula. This is the principle, the very important and fundamental principle that we have seen so far. Now, in addition, with this understanding that Yaakov had to go to Lovon to enter the Klippos, or to enter the domain of the Sitra Achra, in order to fulfill the task of the union of Ben Yosef, which he had, of course, assumed by the blessings that Yitzchak had given him, we can now answer a question which I posed a long time ago. Why is it, or why did Yaakov have to go to Lovan to take a wife? A wife could have been brought to him from Lovan, just like we see that Avram sent his servant Eliezer to get a wife for Yitzchak in the very same household, Besuel, who was the father of Lovan. Why couldn't this, have, this procedure have been duplicated in the case of Yaakov? By Yitzchak, you see, Avram sent Eliezer to get Rivka to marry Yitzchak. Yitzchak didn't have to leave Avram's premises, his residence. Avram did all the necessary requirements to make sure that Rivka would be taken from Besuel's uh, house and brought to Yitzchak. So the question then is, why did Yaakov have to go to Lovan? Why couldn't he have also gotten a wife from one of Lovan's daughters, also by some kind of arrangements that Yitzchak would have made for Yaakov? This is the question. The answer is really very obvious, especially in terms of what we have been learning until now. The answer is that since Yaakov had to go into the Klippus to achieve his mission of Ben Yosef, that we know he had to go because he assumed that mission that Esau originally had. Since he had to go into the Klippus to do that mission, mission because it is in the Klippus that you must go when you are in the Indian of Ben Yosef, you must battle the Sitra Achra in his own territory. Since he had to go into the Klippus, and the Klippa would be in the form of Lovan's residence, that is the way the Klippa would manifest itself. That is the way the domain or the battleground that Yaakov would have to engage in war with the Sitra Achra, that's where it would be held. Then, in other words, and since in Lovan's residence by Lovan, that's where he was to get a wife in the first place, then he would get a wife there and then, since he had to go to Lovan in any case. In other words, since if the primary idea why he went to Lovan was to get a wife, then he would not have had to have gone to Lovan to get that wife. He could have, arrangements could have been made for Lovan to ultimately give one of his daughters to Yaakov through the, inter, through the um, interaction of Yitzchak. However, since the primary reason why Yaakov goes to Lovan is not to get a wife, but to go into the Klippus, and the Klippa in this form, the battleground of the sister Achra at this time, happens to be the household of Lovan, and that is where he would get a wife anyway. 
So therefore, when he goes to Lovan, because anyway he has to go to Lovan to do battle with the Sitra Akra at that point, to withstand the influences of Lovan and to maintain his righteousness, his Sitkas, at that time when he would have to go to Lovan, he would also take a wife from one of Lovan's daughters because that's exactly where he would get a wife in any case. Thus, it is very likely that if he would never have assumed the task of Ben Yosef, if Esav would not have lost it, and we are assuming, of course, that had Esav been a tzaddik and he would not have lost the Indian of Ben Yosef, then he would never have to assume the task of Ben Yosef. Then such would have been the case, that, that a wife from Lovan's daughters would have been gotten or procured for Yaakov in his own home, in Yaakov's own home in Beersheba. And he would not have to have to go out to Lovan at all. And of course, thereby endanger his great spiritual achievements. That is probably what would have happened. Thus, so far, in terms of what we have learned, this readily answers this particular question. Let us now go back to the Chumash and continue the narrative. Just to repeat the first posik for continuity's sake, Vayetzi Yaakov mi Be'er and Yaakov went out from Be'er Sheva, Chorona, and he went to Choron. Now, Vayivka Bamokoim, and he came upon the place, Vayolin Shom, and he lodged there overnight, because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of the place, and he put it by his head, and of course he went there to sleep. Then it says, Vayachlim, and he had a dream. Vihineh, and behold, Sulam Mutsov Arzah, that there was, he beheld a, a ladder that had its bottom, the bottom of the ladder, was standing on the ground. And the top of the ladder reached the heavens. And the angels of God were going up and they were going down on this ladder. Now, there are many interpretations as to what this dream truly signifies. There are many misfortune that deal with it. However, in reference to the inner underlying theme of the entire story of Yaakov and Esau, the truth is that this incident of the dream reveals a particular idea which is relevant to this theme. In other words, this idea or the journey of Yaakov going to Lovan and this dream that he now has where he sees this ladder and the Rebbeinu now talks to him, this really is nothing more than a continuation of the entire story. How? We may ask at this particular point four questions. First of all, it says that Malochim were going up and down the ladder. So the question is, why were Malochim going up the ladder and also down the ladder? What does that really show? The fact that Malochim were going up the ladder and Malochim were going down the ladder. Two different directions. What does this really signify? A second question is why is it that it says they were going up the ladder first and only then, then down the ladder? No, it's the order of the sequence. Why is it first they go up the ladder and why is it second they go down the ladder? A third question. What is revealed? In other words, what is revealed in this particular sequence? Now, a third question. What does the symbol of the ladder signify in the first place? What does the fact that there is a ladder, what does this mean to convey? What is the meaning or the interpretation of that symbol? And the fourth question is, why does it stretch 
from heaven to earth, or rather from earth to heaven. Why does it stretch that way? Now, rather than answer these four questions, I'm going to continue in the narrative and ask more questions, and then I'm going to go back and lay the entire groundwork to answer all the questions that I've asked, and to see how it fits in a continuous way with the entire theme of the story of Yaakov and Esav. Now, to continue in the possum. It says, V'hine Hashem Nitzav Olov, and behold, the Rabbani Shalom was standing upon him, upon Yaakov. Vayomer, and God says, Ani Hashem, God appears to Yaakov for the first time. And he, say, and he says to Yaakov, Ani Hashem, I am God. Elke Avram, Ovichu, the God of Avram, your father, Velke Yitzchok, and the God of Isaac. And you should know that Ha'oretz Asher Atos Shuichevuleha, that the ground upon which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. And your descendants, your offspring, shall be like the sands of the earth. And they shall spread out, these descendants, he says, and you shall spread out, of course he means the descendants of Yaakov. They shall, they shall spread out west and east, North and South. And in you and your descendants will be blessed all the nations of the earth. And the Rabbi Shem continues. Behold, I will be with you. And I will guard you in every way that you go. And I will bring you back to this land. And I won't forsake you. Until when I will have done what I have spoken concerning you. And then it says that Yaakov, of course, woke up from his sleep. And he said, surely that this is a holy place. This is the place where the Rabbani Shalom resides. And I didn't even know about it. Or else I would never have slept, Rashi says. But he was very afraid. And he said that how awesome is this place. This is nothing more than the house of God. This place is nothing more than the house of God. And it's the gate of heaven. And then Yaakov woke up in the morning and he took a stone. and he, The stone which he placed at the top of his head. And he established it as a monument. And he poured uh, oil upon it. And he called the name of that place Beis El. This is what he called the name of the place where he had this dream. And of course Yaakov made a net saying that if God will be with me, Ushmurani, and he will... Watch me, which I go, and he, you know, as he will guard me on the way that which I am about to proceed, and he will give me, of course, bread to eat and clothing to wear, and he will, and I will return to the house of my father in peace. Then God shall be for me as a god, and this stone, and this stone, I shall, of course, erect as a monument between me and the Rebbeinu and everything the Rebbeinu will give me, of course, I will uh, give a tenth of that. This is what Yaakov Avinu says. Now, there are several questions I would like to ask now, besides the first four which I asked previously. And this will conclude the questions uh, on this particular a uh, uh, area where Yaakov journeys to Lavan. Now, the first question, or rather I should say the fifth question, because I had asked four previously. It says there that the Rabbani Shalom is standing on Yaakov. Nitzv Olov. What does this signify that God is standing on Yaakov? It's a rather interesting way of expressing 
uh, an interesting kind of expression that God is standing on Yaakov. So what does this signify? Then it says that the Rebbeinu says to Yaakov, Ani Hashem, and the name that God uses to identify himself is Yudke Vovke. Why? Then the Rebbeinu says to Yaakov that he is the God of Avram and Yitzchok, but he uses there the name of Elohim. He identifies himself with the name of Elohim, which means, of course, that the Rebbeinu in his attribute of justice, God as he appears as a judge, so the question then is, why does the Rebbe use the name of Elohim, especially since they used the name of Yudke Vovke right before? Why the switch? Another question, why does it say, or the statement, that the land that you lie upon will be for you and your offspring? What does this really signify? It should just say that this land will go to you and your offspring. What do you mean the land that you lie upon? Also, another question, why does the Rabbanu say to Yaakov that your descendants will be as the sands of the earth? That's how numerous they will be. What the Rabbanu should say, and which he has said many places, is that they will be as the stars of the heaven. Why does he say now that they will be as the sands of the earth? Because he, he can imply that there will be a great multitude by saying, as he does in many previous places, that, will, that they will be as the, as the stars of the heaven. Why didn't he say that? Another question, why does the Rebbeinu say to Yaakov that his offspring will spread out to all points of the compass, west, east, north, and south? He just told him that he and his descendants will inherit the land that he's lying upon, which implies that they will not be spread out all over. And now he says that they will be spread out to all points of the compass. This seems to be a contradiction. The Rebbeinu seems to be contradicting himself. He says that they will get the land of Eretz Israel, and then he says, you should know they're going to spread out all over the earth. I mean, if that is a contradiction. So therefore, what does that mean? Another question. What does mean? When the Rebbeinu says to Yaakov, and in you and in your descendants shall be blessed all the nations of the earth, what does this really signify? And another question, the Rebbe tells Yaakov that he will guard and watch him, and he won't desert him or forsake him, and he will ultimately bring him back to Eretz Yisrael. Why does the Rebbe tell him that now? Now, there is one more question which I want to ask, and this will make the total of all the questions raised to 13. Chazal tell us that before proceeding to Lovan, Yaakov spent 14 years learning in the yeshiva of Eva, because Shem had already passed away. So Eva had the yeshiva, he continued the yeshiva. So Chazal say that before Yaakov went to Lovan, he went there for 14 years. In fact, Chazal say that it says in the Chumash, it says there that the Vayishkav Bamokim Ahu, and he slept in that place. It should have said, and he slept in the place. Why in that place? So Rashi says it's a mirror that here's where he slept, but he didn't sleep the previous 14 years when he learned in the yeshiva of Avra. Could you imagine what kind of a masmid, how tremendously diligent Yaakov was in his studies? Now, what do you mean? A person obviously cannot stay up for 14 years. What it means is that Yaakov never went to bed 14 years. 
He didn't prepare himself to go to sleep. If he felt tired, he just put his head down on the table over the safer that he was learning, and he would go to sleep. That's what it means. It doesn't mean he didn't sleep 14 years. But obviously, Chazal telling us here that he was so diligent that he never went to bed. He never actually went through the process of tidying the bed, putting on his pajamas, and going to sleep the way everybody does. That's how great of a masmid Yaakov Avinu was. In any case, Chazal tell us that he spent 14 years at that place. So the question is, so the question is, why did Yaakov suddenly feel the importance and the necessity of learning for 14 years in the yeshiva of Eva? Why did he feel this urgency at that particular time to learn there? And we know that only after this intense learning period did he leave for Lovin's house to take a wife from one of his daughters. So the question is, why did not Yaakov listen to his parents right away when they told him to marry one of Lovin's daughters? Why did he tarry 14 years to, t- to learn in the yeshiva of Aver rather than listen to his parents going to Lovin right away and getting married to one of his daughters? This is the question I want to ask and add it on to the previous questions. Now, we shall now see that all these questions that I have asked, all 13 questions, are really easily answered according to the hidden underlying theme that has been presented until now. That if you do know one theme, if you understand the true plot of the story, then all these questions are really answered with that one plot. Now, it says that Yaakov leaves Beersheva to journey to Choron to reside with Lovan. Now, on the way, he lodges overnight at Harhamoria, and that's exactly where he lodged, and has a prophetic dream. What is this dream? He dreams of a ladder that stretches or reaches from earth to heaven. And on this ladder, he observes Malochim both ascending and then afterwards descending the ladder. This is what he observes in the dream. What is the meaning of this dream? In this prophetic dream, the Rabboni Shlodim reveals to Yaakov several ideas. The first thing that he reveals to Yaakov is his past achievement, what Yaakov has done until now. The second thing he reveals to Yaakov is his present mission, what is he about to embark on. And the third thing that the Rabboni Shlodim reveals to Yaakov is the future outcome and the future history of his descendants. These are the ideas that the Rebunshim reveals to Yaakov Avinu in this particular prophetic dream. Now, this is the first time that the Rebunshim appears to Yaakov. Yaakov is 63 years old when he left Yitzchak to go to the house of Lovin. And this is the first time that the Rebunshim appears to Yaakov. The Rebunshim appears to Yaakov and reassures him to calm his fears concerning the future. Now, what does Yaakov see? He sees a ladder standing on the earth, stretching or reaching to heaven. This vision represents or symbolizes to Yaakov two messages, two interpretations. That is what is embodied in this particular dream. In other words, the dream symbolizes a certain or rather certain ideas, and these ideas are the interpretation of this particular dream. 
The first interpretation of this vision concerns itself, concerns itself with the idea of the true essential purpose of man. Also, it reveals Yaakov's progress toward fulfilling that purpose and also what the future holds for him in terms of possibilities. This is the first interpretation, and I will explain, of course, shortly. The second interpretation of this vision demonstrates the two kinds of methods, the two kinds of means, or the various, or the two various approaches by which one can fulfill this intended purpose. In other words, it spells out rather clearly, in other words, this dream spells out clearly in the second interpretation, the method for fulfilling this purpose in much more exact terms. Now, the following is the first meaning of the vision. Earth symbolizes the initial state of man, the beginning status of man. In other words, his initial condition and also his initial circumstance and environment. Thus, man at the outset is a physical being residing in a physical environment. Heaven in the dream, Shemayim, symbolizes man's intended or desired state, or his intended status, in other words, his intended destination or his ultimate objective or goal. Thus, the ultimate goal of man is to be a spiritual being in a spiritual environment or a spiritual world. Thus, earth represents man in Ulam Hazer, primarily, and heaven represents man in Ulam Habo, primarily. Now, the fact that there is an initial state of man and an ultimate intended state of man, in other words, the fact that there are two states different from each other, one initial and one intended, conveys the concept that man has a task to perform, namely, to go from a physical being to one who is spiritual. This is what that idea conveys. Now, therefore the symbols of earth and heaven convey three ideas in summary. The first idea is that it conveys man's initial state. The concept of man's initial state is earthly. The second idea is it conveys the idea of man's intended state, which is of course heavenly or spiritual. And the third idea that, the, uh, that this particular vision reflects is that man's task or mission is to change his state from the physical to the spiritual. These are the three ideas which are contained in the symbolism of the earth and the heaven. The latter in the dream symbolizes the idea that there exists a method or an instrument by which man can affect change in his state. That there is a wherewithal, there is a vehicle by which a man can change the way he is at the outset and the way he can become if he engages in that method. In other words, the latter is the appropriate and the latter is the appropriate symbol for this idea because it itself is a device or an instrument which enables one to change his position, his initial lower position to an intended uh, different higher position. Thus, the latter is used to symbolize the concept that man has a device or an instrument whereby he can introduce change in his being from an initial lower state to an intended different higher state. That is the symbol of the latter. It conveys the idea of method, that there is a method available. 
Now, since this ladder, which indicates the existence of such a method, stretches from earth to heaven in the dream, then this idea of its stretching symbolizes or indicates that this method can or is potent enough to enable man to get from a physical being in a physical universe or a physical environment to a spiritual being in a spiritual environment or a spiritual universe. In other words, the latter symbolizes that there is an instrument or a method that man can employ to fulfill his task. The latter thus symbolizes that man possesses a method that can enable him to introduce change in his being and its stretching from heaven to earth indicates, or rather from earth to heaven, indicates that the method is powerful enough to change him from a physical being, which is of course represented by the earth, to a spiritual being which is represented by the heaven. Now, what is this method? This method, of course, is the avoider, the service of Torah observance. That's what the method is. As an aside, it is interesting to note that just as the latter, which stands for the concept of method, possesses rungs, so, so why does a ladder possess rungs? So one may go up on it one rung at a time, or else a man would fall. If a person tries to jump from the first rung to the fifth rung, he of course is going to fall. That's what the la- that, therefore the ladder has one rung in order, in order to get from the bottom to the top in a slow, cautious and orderly flat fashion. So too, must one proceed in the method which is symbolized by the ladder. In other words, so too must one proceed in the method that leads towards spirituality, namely Torah observance, also one step at a time, or one may fall back toward materiality and physicality. The, the marshal or the analogy or the dream is a complete representation, that the ladder represents the avoidor, therefore just like a ladder has one rung at a time, you go from one rung at a time to reach the height, the same idea, the method, you go one level at a time, and that is the way you reach the height. Thus, one should proceed and grow in Torah and mitzvahs in a slow, careful manner from one level to the next higher spiritual re- level, rather than to try to leap toward greater spirituality, lest you re- endanger yourself and regress to a formal lower level. And that, unfortunately, is sometimes what we encounter, that somebody wants to be too from, too quick, he tries to undertake the uh, tasks of a tzaddik right away, and of course he winds up falling because the human mind, the human psyche, can only adapt and adjust in a specific rate. Too much, of course, breaks the individual. Now, to continue in the dream. In the dream, Malochum are first seen ascending the ladder and then descending the ladder. The angels represent Yaakov himself as he moves towards spirituality through the Torah and the Mitzvahs. This is what the angels represent, Yaakov himself. Thus Yaakov sees angels moving up the ladder, symbolizing this progressive movement towards spirituality, toward Ruchnius, via the method of Torah observance. But he also sees angels descending the ladder afterwards. This symbolizes, in other words, the fact that angels are descending the ladder, 
This symbolizes his possible future. Thus the Rabbanishram reveals to him that just as it is possible to change from a physical state to a spiritual state, which Yaakov had done already, <clears throat> it is also possible to change from a spiritual state back toward a physical one. What does this mean? In other words, <clears throat> just as there is a method to achieve spirituality in one's being, to change one's entity, one's, one's substance to a Ruchnistiga state, so the reversal or the opposite of this method can bring one toward total physicality and materiality. In other words, the Torah, the, or rather the method of Torah observance leads to, to a spiritual state. The method of non-Torah observance, if somebody engages in that particular habit or pattern, the method of non-Torah observance is not negative or objectionable because of the absence of, of spiritual, spirituality that results from the fact that one doesn't engage in Torah observance but because it leads to greater physicality and materialism. Thus, non-Torah observance itself is a method that conducts one to a negative objective or goal. In other words, there is a method by which one can reach Ruchnius spirituality, and the opposite of this method means to abstain or refrain from being Torah observant, isn't merely, the detriment isn't really merely the fact that you don't become spiritual. But if you engage in non-spirituality, that itself is a positive method that leads you to much greater physicality and materiality, the opposite of Ruchnius. This is what the angels ascending and descending signify in their dream. In other words, Yaakov sees himself ascending the ladder via the symbolism of the Malachim. So he sees himself in his former past that he has been observant in Torah and mitzvahs, and therefore he has been occupied in ascending the ladder toward heaven, which of course is Ruchnius. But the Rav warns Yaakov that he is entering an environment, namely Lovan's house, which will try to entice him to forsake Torah and mitzvahs. The Rav shows him the significance of leaving Torah observance in that it intensifies physicality and materiality in one's being. This is what the Rebbeinu shows him. Not that this is the future of Yaakov, that he will descend toward heaven, or, excuse me, or rather he will descend toward earth and become physical, but that this is a possibility if Yaakov falls into the trap of Lovin and the environment that Lovin is in. This is what the Rebbeinu tells him. That know that just like there is a method to achieve Ruchnius, there is a method to achieve Tumor, and it is the exact same method. Tir observance leads to Ruchnius, and the lack of Tir observance leads to Tumor, or the domain of the Sitra This is what the Rebbe tells him. Now, we now understand what the symbols of earth, heaven, ladder, and the Malochim, the angels, ascending and then descending, all represent, according to the first interpretation. In other words, the purpose of man the concept of a method to achieve this purpose, purpose, the idea of Yaakov's previous progress toward this purpose, and the potential downfall and calamity that Yaakov can go through is all revealed in this dream. 
But as mentioned before, there is another meaning and interpretation to this vision that is revealed to Yaakov. What is that? That is that in the method of Torah observance itself, there are two approaches, there are two paths that exist in terms of bringing one toward the desired objective of becoming a spiritual being in a perfected spiritual world. Until now, Yaakov was engaged in the first approach toward spirituality, toward Ruchnius. He now must be involved in the second approach because the total spirituality or the possibility of reaching Ruchnius or spirituality in a spiritual world of both himself and his descendants necessitates his embarking on this second approach. Now, it is important to remember certain ideas which I had stated in the previous shurim quite often. I'll just repeat them again. In order to bring creation to its intended state of perfection, what does it mean when we say the intended state of perfection? It means that the presence of the Rabbani Shalom is seen throughout all creation and no more concealed from the eyes of living beings. No more is it hidden from the eyes of man. In other words, mankind, when the world is in its per intended perfected state, is masig, the true relationship that the Rabbani Shalom has with the universe, and that is that the universe emanates from the Rabbani Shalom, that God created the universe, and they perceive the absolute mastery of God in the universe. That's what's meant by the intended perfected state of creation. No more is the Rabbani Shalom hidden from man, yet instead he is revealed completely throughout all creation. That's what it means. Now, in order to bring creation to this intended state of perfection, it is necessary to remove the danger, or rather it is necessary to remove the damage or the kilkul brought about by the Chet of Odom Harishan, if you recall. The basic way that this is accomplished is by a person warring or fighting or engaging in battle with the Sitra Akhra by withstanding the enticements of the Yitzhahara. That is how a person wars with the Sitra Akhra or the Sultan or the Yitzhahara or the Malchamovas. It is all the same individual or being. The way a person engages in battle with the Sitra Akhra is by withstanding the enticements of the Sitra Akhra as he appears to men in his guise as the Yitzhahara. This particular battle, this particular task is called Kfiyasura, or subjugation of the Sitra Akhra, or to subdue the Sitra Akhra. Afterwards, when this is accomplished, then it is necessary for a person to spread holiness and truth throughout the entire world. In other words, this is what a person has to engage in after the Chet of Odom Rishon, to remove the influence of the Chet of Odom Rishon, to remove the Kilkul, the damage that Odom Rishon's sin wrought in creation, and then afterwards to remove the original Chesan or deficiency of the fact that the Rabbani Shalom is hidden in the Bria. Therefore, it gives rise to two tasks. The first is Kfiyah Sarah, to engage in battle with the Sitra Akram, and the second is to Hispashtis Kedusha, to spread holiness throughout in order to bring the creation 
into awareness that the Rabbanu is the true creator. Now, the second task, as I had mentioned, to remove the chesan, to spread holiness truth throughout the entire world, this is called hispashtis kedusha, or the spreading of holiness. The first task is called tikkun of kilko, the rectification, the correction of the damage which is brought about by the chet of Adam Rishon. And this is primarily accomplished by the Mashiach bin Yosef and those who are nitzitzis, those who are sparks of the Mashiach bin Yosef. The second task is called the tikkun of the chesan, in other words, the correction or the rectification of the original deficiency in the universe that was brought before Adam Rishon did the sin and in which he was placed in order to provide him a test situation. Now, to remove the chesan is primarily accomplished by the Mashiach bin David and again those who are nitzitzis or sparks of that particular individual, Mashiach bin David. Those people who somehow have shaykhus or relationship to the soul of the Mashiach bin David. Now, I have spoken of these ideas many times in the previous shurim. And this is merely just a review to acquaint you with what I want to say now. Therefore, in response to, to these two fundamental tasks, the Rabbani Shalom will place a man in basically one of two settings. Either a person can be elevated and raised by being born in an environment of holiness, Torah and mitzvahs. His task then is to occupy himself with Torah and mitzvahs and promote belief in the Rabbani Shalom. This, of course, is the Hispashtus Kedusha task. Or a person can be lowered by the Rabbani Shalom into an environment where ignorance, darkness and evil abounds. His task at that point is then to become righteous, to achieve a state of Kedusha holiness, and to remain righteous, opposing all evil forces and enticements to the contrary. This is the task of Kfir Sarah, and of course this particular task, or the achievement of this Kfir Sarah, can accomplish the Tikkun of the Kilko in creation. Therefore, in practical terms, a person can be born into the house of a tzaddik, a great Torah scholar, or even a very religious barabbas. In other words, a, an individual who works in secular areas and is not engaged in full-time Torah activities, for instance, teaching in a yeshiva or whatever. And at that point, this individual who's born in that circumstance, his primary task is to observe Torah in an intense fashion, and promote this belief to others, or in practical terms, or in concrete terms. A person can be born into the house of assimilated Jewish parents, or he can be born into the house of marginally religious parents, or very secularized religious parents. And in any case, his primary task in that particular situation will be to become Torah observant notwithstanding all the difficulties and enticements to the contrary. This is basically what the Rebbe does in order to place individuals in their designated roles or tasks. Now, it is important to remember that sometimes the Rebbe will place a person in a holy environment but give him tremendous materialistic and pleasure drives to that individual. 
even though he's in a holy environment, thereby forcing him to war with the Sitra Akhra, even though he lives in a righteous environment. Thus his task is primarily the Tikkun of Kilkul, even though he is in a relatively holy environment. And the reason why he is placed in a religious environment, even though he has such tremendous drive or force toward pleasure, is in order to balance the scales of Torah observance. Or rather, in order to balance the scales to enable him to become involved in Torah observance. Thus, what it does, by giving him an intense exposure to holiness, in order to offset his tremendous pleasure drives, that is why he is placed in a religious environment. Not that he is involved in the task of his Pashtas Kedusha, but really he is involved in the task of Kfir Sarah, to subdue the evil, or to, to war with the Sitra Akhra. But the reason why he is placed in a religious environment is to balance the scales by giving him an intense exposure to holiness in order that he may be able to offset his tremendous pleasure drives. Therefore, the Rabbi Shalom puts him in that holy environment. And actually, this is exactly what happened with Esav. He was given tremendous libidinal drives in order to massacre the Kilkel in creation. In other words, he was required to war and to subdue the Sitra Akhra. Therefore, thus he was to bring a Tikkun to the creation within a Shoma of an Av. In order to offset, however, his intense Yitzhahara, he was also placed in the environment of Yitzchak, where tremendous holiness was present. And now, he could have an equal chance of fulfilling the union of, of the union of Mashiach ben Yosef. Of course, unfortunately, he failed, and Yaakov had to take over and accomplish Esav's task of the union of Mashiach ben Yosef. Now, let us see exactly how this dream symbolizes this, these ideas. In other words, to summarize, man, or rather the Jews at this present time, has two tasks to engage in. And this was brought about by the activities of Odom Rishon. Before his chet, Odom Rishon had to engage in a task called his Pashtas Kedusha, to recognize and to promote in himself the understanding of who the Rebbe Rishon is. And the Yetzirah, the Sitra Akhra, was outside of the physical universe, and the Yetzar would try to entice him away from that. However, since man failed, the Yetzar now has power in the physical universe, he was given control of the physical universe, and therefore man now has a second task, before he can even engage in the Ispashtas Kedusha, to remove the Chassan, of removing the damage that was created by Odom Rishon's Chet, and this was a kilkel in creation. Therefore, these two tasks must be performed by whoever engages in this avoidah. As such, the revolution places individuals in the appropriate environmental settings and gives them the appropriate characteristics or instinctual drives to force them into the arena that they must engage in. Either they are placed in an arena where they have to battle with the Sitra Akhra, either because they are in an environment which is full of ignorance, evil, and darkness, or perhaps they also have tremendous intense drives, even though they are in, in, in a holy environment, 
that's Kfir Surah, or if they are engaged in the battle of Espash, or in the task of Espash Kedusha, then they are put into an environment where they, are, they can promote Kedusha, holiness, and observe Torah and Mitzvahs in an intense way. I will continue next week. As has been mentioned before, there is another meaning and interpretation to the vision that was revealed to Yaakov. That is, that in the method of Torah observance itself, there are two approaches or paths that exist. In terms of bringing one towards the desired objective of becoming a spiritual being in a perfected spiritual world. Now, until now, Yaakov was engaged in the first approach towards spirituality. He now must be involved in the second approach because the total spirituality or ruchnistic achievement of himself and his descendants necessitates or demands his embarking on this second approach. Where is this reflected in the dream? Let us now see how the dream symbolizes these ideas. The earth, according to this second meaning or interpretation, represents in the dream the domain of the Sitra Akhra and all his entourage. The Sitra Akhra, or the Satan, has control over the physical universe after the Chet of Odom Harishim. That is what he was given. In other words, the Sitra Akhra was internalized in the physical universe, and in terms of man, he was internalized in his psyche. Therefore, all men carry around the Eight Sahara inside them. Therefore, Earth symbolizes the domain of the Sitra Akhra, or the residence of the Klippos, which is another name for Sitra Akhra. The domain of the Klippos is especially intense and concentrated where Rishoim live, because since they wish to do evil, they become the very agents of the Sitra Akhra to bring evil and harm to creation. In other words, the Satan uses them to bring about his design. Thus, where evil men live is primarily the domain of the Sitra Akhra. It is the primary residence of what's called the Klippos. Heaven in a dream represents the domain of spiritual beings where they reside and where they have control. But the domain of spiritual beings is not restricted to Shemayim. The residence of great tzaddikim and kadoshim, great righteous men and holy men, is also the domain of Shemayim or heaven, or the Sitra de Kedusha, the holy side. That is where there is a great concentration of angels, of Malochim, and also the divine presence itself, the Shekhinah, also resides there. Even though we cannot see them, the Malochim, or experience the Shekhinah at the house of a great tzaddik. In any case, they are still there. In other words, Shemaim or heaven is also present on the earth in the house of a great tzaddik. Now, the latter in the dream symbolizes the concept of a method to achieve spirituality, as it did in the first interpretation. We now understand these three ideas. Again, the earth symbolizes the domain of the Sitra Akhra, the Klippos, where he has control over. Heaven or Shemayim represents the domain of 
spiritual beings. And what is important to note is that spiritual beings do not only reside in Shemayim, but they also reside on the earth, especially in the presence or the house of a great tzaddik. And the latter represents, again, the concept that there is a method to achieve spirituality. Now, the malachim or the angels in the dream represent Yaakov as he is being engaged to one approach. And then, as he is being directed to be involved in the second approach. Thus, the Rebbeinu reveals to Yaakov that at first he was raised and elevated into a holy environment, into the house of Yitzchak, to engage primarily in the task of his Pashtas Kedusha in the union of Mashiach ben David. This is symbolized in the dream by angels, Malachim, first ascending to heaven, that means they are oile to Kedusha, they are elevated to a spiritual environment, along the ladder. In other words, the fact that angels are ascending along the ladder indicates that Yaakov is being placed into a spiritual environment to do the job of Hispashtis Kedusha, and the fact that it's along the ladder indicates that this is a method for achieving Ruchnius. Now the Rabbani Shalom reveals to him that he is being lowered into the domain of the Sitra Achra to accomplish the task of the Tikkun of the Kukul in the union of Mashiach ben Yosef. This is symbolized by angels descending afterwards towards earth and again along the ladder because along the ladder means that this is a valid method also for achieving Ruchnius because that's what the ladder indicates. And of course, this of course happened because Yaakov received the union of Mashiach ben Yosef permanently with the brachas of Yitzchak because Esau failed at his designated task and turned toward evil. Thus we see that the dream, according to the second interpretation, reflects the idea that there are two ways in order to reach spirituality. And since Esau failed in his portion, Yaakov now had to assume Esau's task and assume his, uh, or rather uh, direct himself toward that approach. And that is what is indicated by the dream. That first Yaakov ascended into an environment of holiness, Yitzchak's house, and there he would engage in the task of his Pashtas Kedushan, in the union of Mashiach ben David. And then he would engage in the task of the union of Mashiach ben Yosef in Kfiya to remove the kilkul from creation. And this is similar by the dream, that first angels were ascending, of course, along the ladder toward heaven, which is a spiritual environment. And afterwards, they were descending toward earth, which, of course, is the domain of the Sitra Akhra, to indicate that Yaakov was being forced into the domain of the Sitra Akhra, which is the residence of Lovon, in order to bring a tikkun to the kilkul in creation. And this, of course, is the method of the Mashiach ben Yosef, who, of course, who was primarily involved in the Kfiyas Hura. This, then, is the second interpretation of the vision of the ladder stretching from heaven to earth with malachim, or angels, ascending and descending this ladder. In other words, as a brief summary, 
At first, Yaakov was Ula. He ascended to a spiritual environment. A spiritual environment, of course, which in essence contains Kedusha. And now he would be lured into the Klippers. In other words, into an evil and dark environment. Both are necessary approaches. Both are required in order to ultimately bring the universe, the created universe, to its intended perfected state, which the Rabbani Shalom created it for. The vision of earth, the vision of heaven, the visions of the ladder and the angels ascending and descending reveals in summation, in the first interpretation, the purpose of man, the past progress of Yaakov as he went toward that purpose, the significance of leaving the Avuda with its inherent warning to Yaakov of a potential disaster that could occur in Lovin's house where Yaakov was headed to. In the second interpretation, it discloses the two major approaches to bring complete tikkun to creation. That initially Yaakov was involved with the approach of Kispashtis Kedusha, and that now he would be immersed in the Klippos, which of course is the domain of the Sitra Achra, to be Kriferah, to subdue or subjugate evil since he now assumed permanently the Indian of Mashiach ben Yosef to massacre, to correct, to rectify the kilku or damage in creation. Let us now continue with the further interpretations of Yaakov's prophetic dream. He now beholds in the dream that the Rabbani Shalom is standing upon him. What does this signify? In other words, it says in the Pasuk, V'hine Hashem Nitzov Olov, and behold, that God was standing upon him. This is what Yaakov beheld. What is the import of this particular phrase in the Pasuk? In the end of Parshas Lech Lecha, just before Avram is to perform the mitzvah of Milo on himself and his household, it says over there, V'yichal daber and the Rabbani Shalom ended from speaking with Avram, Vayal Elokim Me'al Avram, and God ascended from upon Avram. This Pasuk in actuality reveals a profound concept, a very important, a very fundamental idea, that the Ovas are in fact a chariot to the Rabbani Shalom, that they are his vehicle. Therefore it says that God ascended from upon Avram, as if previous to his ascending, he was born by Avram or carried by Avram. This is what the import would mean. The symbol of the chariot means that just as a chariot is a vehicle which brings the driver to a place where he wishes to go, in other words, it brings the driver to a place where he was not previously there, at least not now, so too do the others also bring the Rabbani Shalom to a place where he wishes to go, where he was not previously, in other words, where he is previously absent, and therefore he now wishes to go there. What does this mean? Previously the world was devoid of the presence of God. It was devoid, it was absent of the belief of God. Through the Avodah, through the service of the Ovis, of the patriarchs, the Rabbani Shalom is now revealed to all of mankind, and therefore is now present in the world. Thus previously the Rabbani Shalom is concealed. There is a hester ponim of the Rabbani Shalom in the universe. 
And now he's revealed. Now there is a haoras ponov, a revelation, a shining of the presence of God in the universe. Therefore, the others are metaphorically referred to as a chariot, because that is exactly what conveys this meaning. But it is important to note something else that this Pasuk reveals. It says that the Rabbani Shalom ascended from upon Avraham, which seems to imply that the Rabbani Shalom got off Avram, or metaphorically stepped off the chariot, because that is what Avram represents. Why is that? Because it seems as if the Rabbani Shalom had reached a primary destination. A person gets off a chariot when he has reached the destination that he wanted to go to. When it says over there in that Pasuk, that Vayal Elokim Mi'al Avram, that God ascended from upon Avram, it not only refers to the fact that Avram is therefore a chariot, an individual that bears God, that is a vehicle to bring God to a destination which he was not there, but it also says that the Rabbani Shalom ascended from off Avram. So therefore, if Avram is a chariot, it literally means, or figuratively or metaphorically means, that God got off the chariot. Apparently, the Rabbani Shalom had reached some kind of destination, and therefore he got off. He ascended. What destination did the Rabbani Shalom reach that he got off Avram? What this means is that the Rabbani Shalom waited for 2,000 years, from the time that the first man was created, until the time of Avram is 2,000 years. The Rabbani Shalom, you should know, waited for 2,000 years for someone who would enter into an agreement with him. What would this agreement entail? That this person would massacre the Bria, would correct or rectify the situation in creation, and make sure, he knows he would rectify this situation, and this person would also make sure that his descendants, that his children, would also do likewise. And what would the Rabbani Shalom do in his part, on his part, the Rebbe would give this person and all his descendants Olim Habba. This is what God was waiting for for 2,000 years. And we know that Adam failed, not only that, but for 2,000 years all of mankind kept failing in the sense that nobody wanted to do the will of God. Therefore, the Rebbe patiently waited for 2,000 years for somebody to do what he wants, and that is to enter into an agreement with him, to be massacred in the Bria, and to make sure that his children are also massacred in the Bria. This is what the Rebbe waited for. Now, Avram was precisely that person who finally entered into this agreement with the Rebbe who finally engaged with the Rebbe and said that I will do what you ask that you want somebody to massacre the Bria, I will do it. And not only that, I will make sure that my descendants will also do it. We will do your will. Let's make an agreement. And that's, of course, what Brisbane Absurum, the covenant between the pieces, signifies. Now, the mitzvah or the act which symbolizes this agreement is the mitzvah or the act of circumcision, milah. In other words, when Avram was about to perform this symbolic act, which represents the agreement between he and the Rabbani Shalom, because that's what the Bris Mila represents, that we are in agreement with God. 
and at a future date we'll examine the mitzvah itself and see how the mitzvah literally reflects according to Tzahalochus the agreement that Jews have with the Rabbanu Shalom. But that's for later on. In any case, we see that when Avram was about to perform this symbolic act of an agreement with the Rabbanu Shalom, then the first primary objective or destination had been reached by the Rabbanu Shalom. That was that he made an agreement with an individual who would assume or accept the responsibility of being Masakan the Brio and bringing the world to its intended perfected state and therefore he would earn Olam Habo which is the entire purpose why God created the universe and man in the first place. Therefore, since that milestone that objective had been reached. Therefore, the Rabbanishim ascended from Avram. And this conveys two ideas. The Pasuk of Vayal or Rukim in Avram therefore conveys two fundamental ideas. That Avram is a chariot or a vehicle through which or in which the Rabbanishim can enter the world. And that's shown by Me'al Avram from upon Avram. And the second idea is that Avram had achieved for the Rabbani Shalom a major objective, in that there is now a Masakin to the Bria. And of course, this major objective is reflected in the fact that there is a mitzvah of Mila which is commanded to Avram. Therefore, since that is the case, the Rabbani Shalom now ascends from upon Avram, because at that point in time, the Rabbani Shalom had achieved that primary objective, Therefore, he got off the chariot because he had arrived at his first destination. He now has an individual and a nation, his de- the descendants of this individual, who will be, be Masak and the Brian, and therefore bring the universe to its intended perfected state, and therefore they will earn Ulam Habo. And as I said, and we all know, that is exactly why the Rabbi Hashem created the universe in the first place. Now, this is what happened by Avram. So we see clearly that when it says and God ascended from upon Avram, this indicates that Avram was a chariot. And the ascension indicates that Avram had brought God into the universe and therefore a primary objective had been achieved and therefore God, so to speak, ascended or got off the chariot. This does not mean, of course, that Avram is not bearing of the Rabbani Shalom as a chariot later on. But the fact that it says Vayal, that God ascended, indicates that a primary objective had been reached. Now, when it says by Yaakov, and now we can understand what goes on by Yaakov. When it says by Yaakov that he beheld the Rabbani Shalom standing upon him, it conveys the very same concept that we saw by Avram. That the Ovois, and in this case Yaakov, is a chariot to God. Because it says, Vihini Hashem needs of Olov, that God was standing upon him. In other words, that Yaakov is a chariot to the Rebbeinah And we know the chariot conveys symbolically or metaphorically the idea that the Ovois are the ones who bring God to his destination, namely this world. Just as a chariot is a vehicle or an instrument which brings its driver to a destination that the driver was not previously there. Therefore, we see that the Rabbani Shalom was standing on Yaakov because he is therefore a chariot to God through his Avodah. But if you notice, it does not say that God ascended from Yaakov. 
but rather it says that the Rabbanu Shalom was standing on Yaakov, which is different than what it said by Avram. What does that convey? What does that mean? This indicates that the primary objective which Yaakov had to achieve for the Rabbanu Shalom in his capacity as being a chariot was not complete. Therefore, the Rabbanu Shalom remained standing on Yaakov, which metaphorically means that the Rabbanu Shalom remained in the chariot and did not go out of it, since it does not say that God ascended from ya- Yaakov. It said that God was standing on Yaakov. See, therefore, this means that the Rabbanu Shalom is still on Yaakov. He's still in the chariot. Since the Rabbanu Shalom did not, did not yet reach his intended destination. But what does it mean when we say that Yaakov had not fully accomplished a primary objective for the Rabbani Shalom, and therefore the Rabbani Shalom remained standing on Yaakov? What does that mean? The answer is that Yaakov did achieve a primary objective for the Rabbani Shalom. What was that? This was the avoider of his Pashtus Kedushot, to spread the holiness, to promote the belief of the Rabbani Shalom. And this was assigned to Yaakov originally. This is the avoider of Mashiach Mendovid, if you recall. But since Yaakov had to assume the task of Kfir Sarah, which is the union of Mashiach ben Yosef, which we know was originally assigned to Esau, and Esau lost it because Esau turned to Ra or evil, then we know that since Yaakov assumed this task, then it comes out that Yaakov had not yet completed his total task, which now includes the addition of the Indian of Mashiach ben Yosef. That is why Yaakov beholds the Rabbi Shalom still standing upon him, and not yet ascending, since his mission of serving as a chariot for the Rabbi Shalom, and therefore achieving a primary objective for the Rabbi Shalom, has not been totally accomplished. In other words, had Yaakov only assumed the task of Mashiach ben David, which is his Pashtas Kedusha, then it is very likely that when Yaakov dreams of God for the first time, that he would have beheld the Rabbani Shalom ascending from upon him, since the Rabbani Shalom had reached his primary destination in terms of the union of the Mashiach ben David being Iskayim through and off. But since Yaakov now assumed the union of Mashiach ben Yosef, which Esav originally had, and which Esav lost because he went to evil, therefore Yaakov beheld the Rabbani Shalom on his way to Lovan, because that means he was on his way to do the task which Esav had failed. Yaakov beheld the Rabbani Shalom standing upon him, which means that the Rabbani Shalom is still in the chariot, is still on Yaakov or Vinum. But you may ask a very good question at this point. If what is being presented here, if it is true, then when Yaakov returns from Lovan after 20 years and is successful, or rather has successfully withstood the enticements, the trickery and the evil of Lovan, knows that Yaakov had steadfastly remained at Sadiq, righteous, then it must be admitted by all that at that point Yaakov will have achieved also the primary objective as an of, as a Sherish, the primary objective of Kfir Sarah, or the Inyan of Mashiach ben Yosef. If that is the case, then we should see this being reflected in his relationships to the Rabbani Shalom in terms of his being a chariot. In other words, there should be some kind of a posse that reflects this, where Yaakov as a chariot 
has achieved that primary objective for the Rabbanishtam, in other words, to be kufara, to subdue or subjugate evil, in terms of the union of Mashiach ben Yosef. And therefore, we should see it somehow reflected in a posseq, especially in a posseq which talks in terms of Yaakov being a chariot from God. Do we see this somewhere? And the answer is, of course we see this, because that's exactly what was going on. In Parshish Vayishlach, it says, after Yaakov returned from Novan, and after his account- encounter with Esav, the Rabbi Shalom appears to Yaakov and calls him by the name Yisrael. This is what it says in Parshish Vayishlach. The name Yisrael that the Rabbi Shalom calls Yaakov signifies a very important idea. What does it signify? It indicates that Yaakov has been successful in achieving the tikkun of the kilkel in a great measure. In other words, that he has been successful in achieving the union of Mashiach ben Yosef, and also that he has been successful in achieving the union of Mashiach ben David, which he had already accomplished. In other words, that Yaakov Avinu had been successful in both inyanim, the union of Mashiach ben David, which is his pastor's kedusha, which he had, he, he had achieved before he left for Lovim, and now the union of Mashiach ben Yosef, which is Kfir Sarah, which he had achieved now after returning from Lovim. Therefore, the Rabbani Shlom calls Yaakov Yisrael, therefore he merits the name of Yisrael, because the name Yisrael now indicates that Yaakov Avinu and his descendants are a permanent Masakin. And therefore, there is a permanent agreement with the Rabbani Shlom. Now, I will explain the concept of Yisrael later in greater lengths when we get to that point. In any case, after the Rabbani Shlom has completed speaking to Yaakov and calling him Yisrael, which indicates that Yaakov had achieved both ideas, the union of Mashiach ben David, which is his Pashtas Kedusha, and the union of Mashiach ben Yosef, which is Kfir Surah, it says over there, that God ascended from him in the place in which he spoke to him. Therefore we see that the Rebbe ascends from upon Yaakov just as he did with Avram. And for the very same reason, when Yaakov successfully achieved the union of Mashiach ben Yosef, coupled with the fact that he had already achieved the inyanum of ben David, he then accomplished the primary objective of finalizing the agreement and becoming a permanent Masakin. In other words, he finalized that agreement which was made between the Rabbani Shalom and Avram. Therefore, that is an incredible milestone. That is the major objective that the Rabbani Shalom wanted from Yaakov. Thus, he, Yaakov, and all his future offspring, because, they had, uh, because Yaakov had finalized the agreement between God and Avram. Therefore, he, Yaakov, and all his future offspring would always be able to bring a tikkun to creation by their acts and thereby earn Olam Habo. Therefore, we see that the Rebbeinu is ascending from upon Yaakov, who is his chariot, which indicates metaphorically that the Rebbeinu stepped out of the chariot because the Rebbeinu had reached a significant objective or milestone, namely that there now existed a nation who would attempt to bring a tikkun to creation and earn Olam Habo. We now understand exactly what Vihinei Hashem needs of Olam. That this indicates that Yaakov was a chariot, and the fact that it was Nitzov and not Vayal, 
that God was standing on Yaakov and not ascending indicates that Yaakov still had work to do. And when he did accomplish this task completely, the Indian of Ben Dovid previously, and now the Indian of Ben Yosef after leaving Lovin, it truly does say, that God ascended. Because metaphorically means that God got off the chariot because that primary objective had been reached. And that primary objective was that Yaakov now finalized the agreement that existed between God and Avram. And now there would be a, a nation that would be able to massacre Nebriah and thereby earn Olam Habo. This is the idea of what Vihine Hashem Mitzvah Olov indicates. Let us continue so far. The Rabboni Shalom says to Yaakov further in the Pasuk, Vayoyma, and he says, Ani Hashem, I am God, Elokei Avram, the God of Isaac, or excuse me, the God of Avram, of Yichu, your father, Velokei Yitzchok, and the God of Yitzchok, Horetz, the land which you, which you lie upon, to you I will give it, and to your descendants. Now, the Rabbi says to Yaakov, Ani Hashem, I am the Lord. Now, the name that God uses to speak to Yaakov is Yudke Vovke. What does this mean? The Rabbi reveals to Yaakov the attribute or the conduct of Anhogas Ayichud, which the name or the shame of Yudke Vovke stands for, as has been explained many times previously. He is revealing this to Yaakov, just as he, has re- he had personally revealed the concept of Anogas Yichud to Avram, if you recall, by the Brisbane Absarum. He is now revealing it personally to, uh, to Yaakov Avinu in this dream, because this dream is the first time that he appears to Yaakov. So he is now revealing this concept of Anogas Yichud to Yaakov Avinu. Now, the Rabbani Shalom states, that even if Yaakov Avinu and his descendants are not completely successful in subduing the Sitra Achra and remaining steadfast in Torah observance, in other words, if they themselves, the Jews, cannot completely accomplish this task because they fall prey to the enticements of the Goyim, the enticements of the Sitra Achra, the evil environments, and so on, then there is an attribute which the Rabbani Shalom has which will make sure that creation comes to its intended tikkun or correction through the Jews and thereby they will certainly earn Olam Habo. But the Rabbani Shalom says to Yaakov that he is Elokei Avram v'Yitzchok using the name which indicates justice in other words, previously the Rabbani Shem used the name Yudke Vovke because the Rabbani Shem is informing Yaakov of the attribute of Anhogas Ayichot that ultimately the Jews will bring a Tikkun to the universe even if the Rabbani Shem must assist them. Now the Rabbani Shem says to Yaakov that I am the God of Avram, your father, and the God of Yitzchak and he uses the name of Elokei which is, of course, the attribute of justice the role that God has as being a just God. In this, he informs Yaakov that even though the Rabbani Shalom will assist he, Yaakov, and the Jews in bringing a tikkun to creation through Anagasi Yichud, it can only come through the Jews, the, uh, the Jewish endeavor, 
and to nothing else. Thus the Jews must truly deserve Oilim Habo because of their actions and their sweat in bringing a Tikkun to creation. Ultimately, <clears throat> the Rabbani Shalom is a God of justice. Even though he may perform profound and infinite chesed, he is still a God of justice. Thus, if the Jews are not bringing a Tikkun to creation through Torah observance or tshuva, then you should know they will ultimately do it through suffering or yisurin, or oppression or persecution. This is all yisurin. Brought about by subjugation by other nations, exile and persecution. This is the third method of bringing Tikkun to the world. As has been mentioned many times in previous shurim, that there are three methods which the Rabbani Shalom gave in order to massacre the Bria as part of his chesed, that if you do not do the first and the second, which is mitzvahs and tshuva, you can still bring the Bria, the universe, the creation, to its intended perfected state by suffering Yisurim. This is the third method which the Rabbani Shalom gave as an, a guarantee that an individual can bring a tikkun to creation. In other words, the Rabbani Shalom will only help them do their task, sometimes forcing them to do it, but only they can do it. In other words, but they and only they can actually massacre the Bria. Only the Jews can do it. Nobody else can. And the Rabbani Shalom will not massacre the Bria without the actions of the Jews. He will not do it himself. Because that is chesed. And God is first and foremost a judge. Thus, the Rabbani Shalom, as I said, is first and foremost a God of justice. A God that will only reward in response to a person's actions and no other way. He will enable or he will assist the person. But the person must do the job himself. What Anhogas Yichud therefore does is to help the Jews do their job. But they and only they ultimately must do the job itself. That's what Velokei, that I am the God of Avram, your father, and the God of Yitzchak. That even though Ani Hashem, that I have the attribute of Anhogas Yichud to help them, to assist you and your descendants to be massacred in the Bria, but ultimately I am the God in terms of Elohim, Justice. I am the God of Avram and the God of Yitzchok, the God of justice. That the Tikkun of the Bria can only be done through the actions of the Jews. That's the only way it can be done. Now, to go further. The Rabbani then tells Yaakov that he will possess the ground or the land that he is lying upon. What does this mean? What the Rabbani is telling Yaakov is that initially or at the outset... The Jews will be massacred the Kilkul in creation through method A, which if you recall, as I had mentioned many times, method A is domination and, uh, and, and material wealth and abundance. In other words, what the Rosham is telling Yaakov is that initially or at the outset, the Jews will massacre the Kilkul through method A, which is domination and possession of Israel, material wealth and abundance. This method will be given to them first, to attempt to bring a Tikkun to the Kilkul in creation. How is this symbolized in the Pasuk? How is this seen in the Pasuk? This is symbolized by the statement, the land which you lie upon. In other words, the land which you and your offspring will dominate and control, 
lie upon. That's what lie upon means. That you will dominate and control. This will be yours, your possessions. Or your possession. Thus the Rebbeim reveals to Yaakov two things in this Pasuk. That he will possess the land. That he and his descendants will possess, possess the land. And the second thing is that he will lie upon it. Which means that he and his descendants will dominate and control this land. That is method A. He will not be dominated and subjugated by other nations in this land. This is method A for being Masak in the Kilkel in creation. Afterwards, the Rabbanisham reveals to Yaakov what will eventually transpire with his descendants in their task of Tikkun of Kilkel through method A. The Rabbanisham then says to Yaakov, that vihoyo zaracho, your children shall be ka'afar oretz, as the dust of the earth. Uforatz the yomov and you will spread out, means you and your descendants, will, rather your descendants will spread out, yomov west and east, but tzafoyno v'negbo, and north and south. V'nivrichu b'chor kol mishpucho and in you and your descendants, in your seed, in your offspring, will be blessed all the nations of the earth. Now, I had asked two previous questions. Why is it that the Jews are described as the sands of the earth and not like the, the stars of the heaven as they are described in other places in the Torah? And the second question is, why does it say, why does the Rebbeim say, and you will spread out to all four points of the compass when the Rebbeim just said in the previous Pasuk that they will inherit the land, which means they will not spread out to all four points of the compass. And the idea to that is that the Rebbeim reveals to Yaakov the history of the Jews. The Rebbeim reveals to him that they will not be successful through method A. That at first they will try to have method A. That's what God gives them. In other words, domination over the land, material wealth and abundance. This is method A. This is what they will first have. But the Rebbeim reveals that they will not be successful through this method to massacre the Kilgorn. And therefore, Hanhogas HaYichud will force them into method B, which is what? Which is subjugation by alien nations, exile and persecution. Therefore, the Rebbeim tells Yaakov that your offspring will be as the sands of the earth, which means that they will be trampled upon and persecuted and made to suffer. Just as the sands of the earth, people step on. That is what the Rebbeim is telling Yaakov. Not only is he telling him that, but he's also telling him that they will spread out west, east, north, and south. This, of course, is the exile of Method B. Thus, subjugation, exile, and persecution are incredibly revealed in this Pasuk. In other words, the Rebbeim is revealing to Yaakov the history of his descendants. What will happen with them? First, they will endeavor to be massacred in the Kilkul through method A, which essentially is political autonomy. In other words, they dominate other nations, and they are themselves not dominated or subjugated by foreign nations. Also, they will have material wealth and abundance. This is what essentially method A is, and this is what at first they will endeavor to do. That is the method that the Rebbeim will give them at first. They will fail, however, this is what the Rebbeim reveals to Yaakov, 
they will fail by and large. Therefore, Hanagasa Yuchud will force them into method B, which is domination by other nations, exile and oppression. And in that way, they will be able to bring about a tikkun to creation, which they could, in far greater and more present circumstances, just as easily have accomplished through method A. That is why it, is, it describes the Jews as, be, as being like the sands of the earth and not like the stars of the heaven, as it does in other places in the Torah, because it is referring to the Jews as they are involved in method B. That's what that Pesach is talking about. That's what the Rosham tells them what will be with the Jews. That is why it says that the Jews will be spread out all over, even though it says previously, in the previous Pesach, that the Jews would possess the land, which implies that they will not be dispersed all over, because it is talking about the future of the Jews, which is that they will fail at method A and be forced in method B to massacre the Kilkul in creation. So we see therefore that the Rosham tells Yaakov Ovinu what will happen. That at first they will go through method A and they will fail. And therefore your children will go into method B, which means that they will be as the sands of the earth. They will be trampled upon and persecuted, and they will be exiled. You will be spread out, your descendants will be spread out to all points of the compass, because they will be method B, which of course is that they will have to go into exile. Now, then the Rebbeinu tells Yaakov, And in you shall be blessed, all the families of the earth and in your children. In other words, all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and descendant and in your descendants. What is the revelation revealing now? We know that he just told Yaakov that the Jews will have to massacre the Kilkun creation through method B. And that's what the Pasik indicates. Therefore, this phrase must indicate something about method B. What does it indicate? What the Rebbe is revealing to Yaakov is that even though your offspring will have to go through method B to bring about the Tikkun of Kilkul, and therefore they will have to, of course, suffer terrible persecutions, go through exile, and be dominated and subjugated by foreign alien nations, you should know, the Rebbe tells Yaakov, the ultimate outcome of all their oppressions is that the world will truly achieve its intended perfected state, which we know is that God will reveal himself to all mankind. And in other words, the world, the outcome, the ultimate outcome of all their suffering is that the world will reach its intended perfected state through the Jews, thereby ushering in a utopian world, which of course is the Yemaisa Mashiach, in which all nations and families of the earth shall witness this time, and enjoy and partake, and this constitutes, of course, an incredible blessing for the nations, for the families of the earth. In other words, the Jews will be successful in bringing a tikkun to the world, and this will be readily seen. This is readily apparent in the fact that the nations shall be blessed. That's what that pasuk means. Now, to continue, then the Rebbeinu tells Yaakov that do not be afraid. In other words, Behold, I am with you. And I will guard you, I will watch over you in every way that you go. 
And I will return you to this land. I will not forsake you. I won't abandon you. Until I will have done with you what I have spoken concerning you. The Rebbein Shem tells Yaakov that be not afraid. Why does the Rebbein Shem have to tell, have to tell Yaakov that there will be a special divine providence that the Rebbein Shem will look after him specially? Why now? The answer is that the Rebbein Shem tells Yaakov that be not afraid since you are about to descend into the Klippes or the domain of the Sitra Achra himself. Behold, I will be with you. I will be with you. Anybody who enters the Klippos, you should know, needs a special Shmirah, a special divine protection. Because the place, that place, the Klippos, the domain of the Sitra Achor, is incredibly perilous and extremely dangerous, especially to a tzaddik. Therefore, the Rabban Shalom has to go out of his way to promise or to say to Avram that he will get a special protection so he should not be destroyed by the Sitra Achra as he tries to bring about a tikkun to the Kilkum and fulfill the inyad of Mashiach bin Yosef. This is why the Rebbe tells Yaakov at this point that I will be with you. And he tells him that don't worry, that the, I will make sure that the Sitra Achra is not mekatrit to such a great extent where you will be destroyed. I will protect you. And I will allow you to complete the job of bringing a tikkun to the kilkul of doing the job of the Indian of Mashiach ben Yosef. Of course, as long as Yaakov wants to do, the Rosh is telling Yaakov that you have free will, that if you want to do the job, I will protect you and make sure that you won't be destroyed by the Klippos since you are entering their domain to do that job.